Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I was always a little bit of the black sheep of the family. Um, my older brother, you know, it was kind of clear, like, you know, he he wasn't like going to be a college kid, right? Um, I yeah. think if he if he applied himself, he absolutely could be. But But I mean your parents probably know better than anyone. Like not everyone's made for college, right? That's, that's just one path. Right. Um, I mean, welders make 150 grand a year and you know, there's, we're in, we're in, yeah, we're in need of hundreds of thousands of them right now. Right. And the reason there's so many kids like failing out of college and, you know, getting a bunch of debt is because they're just maybe not meant for college. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, he was, he was kind of on that path. Um, you know, he didn't know if he wanted to go into the trades or not, but he eventually did. Uh, but, but it's, you know, I was a little bit of the black sheep and I knew it. And, you know, at times I was pretty arrogant about it. And other times, like, you know, my parents or I don't know if my parents were resentful about it, but there was just like a, there wasn't a, there wasn't a good mix there. It was oil and water for, for a while and a lot of axes. And so I think, um, yeah, it, it's been bumpy. It's, it's, you know, not great, but I think, um, you know, my parents, they, they understand what I do, but they don't understand what I do. It's like working in tech, like, you know, right. it's, it's all this like sub stuff of sub stuff that, you know, when you're in this industry, everyone's like, oh yeah, you guys do that. Oh, that's really cool. But it's just a bunch of jargon. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's not, it's not great, but I think the relationship it's, it, it definitely was probably affected by that, that difference, um, that difference in, in kind of focus and that difference in, in kind of uh, context that, that both were there. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Patrick, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited, excited to chat and get deep here. Yeah. So I actually was introduced to you by way of uh, the team at, at BeMyGuest.fm, who I know has been and basically promoting you on, on podcasts. And I'm always very skeptical when I get a lot of these pitches. Uh, but there was something about yours that really struck me as a, a moment of like, this is a hell yes, because there's something really special here. Uh, you know, I know that you have bootstrapped a company, you've been through hell to get there. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact has that had on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's where it all begins, right? So my, uh, my par- I come from a very like blue collar family uh, in kind of uh, Southeast Wisconsin. So grew up in dairy farm country, basically, you know, a town with, you know, more cows than people. Uh, my parents weren't farmers, uh, although there are a lot of farmers around us. My dad is, um, he's a, he started his career as a tinner, uh, which is basically someone who works with sheet metal, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the trades. And so he went through a, a union apprenticeship program 
he worked on roofs and skyscrapers for most of his career. And then kind of uh, a little bit later, he got laid off after, you know, working 17 years at, at one place uh, for Langer Roofing, actually, in Milwaukee area. And ended up um, basically uh, going back to school. And in the union, will always find you work. And so he was working and traveling a bit, but he went back to school to learn HVAC uh, engineering, basically taking care of you know boilers and chillers and things like that. And so um, yeah, it was it was it was one of those things where he then ended up being basically on you know different maintenance or um, HVAC teams, and now works at a company called Northwestern Mutual, which I'm sure a lot of folks have heard about. Uh, but runs um, on on a team runs their kind of like heating and air conditioning for their skyscrapers in Milwaukee. And uh, on the other side, my mom she basically worked her way up from working at a uh, so she worked for a company called Leeson Electric for most of her career. They made these electric motors in Grafton, Wisconsin, and she was on the assembly line uh, and then became an executive assistant and then became basically a marketing associate and then was an, ended up leaving uh, leading the. Um, trade show and event marketing for uh, this company for a long time and then ended up leaving there after 20 and 20 some years uh, and then was doing this for other companies and then finally retired. And uh, yeah, I think that's, it's heavily influenced, like everything that I just said heavily influenced me. And my father was also in the military as a reservist, um, did did tour and all that kind of fun stuff in Iraq. And so um, he was, a, he was what's called a CB, which is a uh, you know, basically construction battalion. They, they have the phrase, we build, we fight. So that definitely was a, was a, was a heavy influence on me as well. Mm, wow. So many questions come just from that. Uh, oh, I'm sure. As, I'm sure. Uh, as you know, having grown up with a father who did so much work with his hands, uh, what did he teach you about craft, um, work ethic, uh, ritual and habit? Because I, I can't help but think somebody who does that kind of work has that really deeply embedded into who they are. Yeah. I don't know if it was... Yeah, I don't know if it was too much about craft. So, so what was interesting is, and this is where it's a really interesting question. I think for ritual, uh, it was it was huge because my my dad also like when you meet a lot of like you know union labor guys, and they're mostly guys, um, you know, and this could be anything from a teamster all the way to an electrician. You know, they're they're kind of a, a little bit of a, a similar ilk where you know they love their sports teams, they go out and drink, um, you know, all that kind of fun stuff, and you know they love their family and stuff like that. And my brother actually became an electrician, and you know this is kind of his lifestyle: his family, sports, church, and you know his friends, basically. But I think that my dad, he you know hadn't had a, a drop of alcohol since you know my brother was born, who's older, and so he he was a guy that came home and basically had two jobs because. He would go to work. Um, then he would come home and have all his reservist stuff, which was, you know, he's part of the, you know, at the end of his career there, he's part of the leadership of the battalion. And so had to like chase down all these like 18 to 25 year olds for stuff, you know, for, for basically records and things like that. And in all of his free time, he would just read books. And I'm not talking about like, oh, like the latest John Grisham novel. Like this is a guy who we would, it was the most boring thing when I was a kid, but we would go to used bookstores and find old textbooks about sheet metal and HVAC and like just all kinds of stuff. And then basically, um, you know, he would come home and read those and learn how to do a lot of stuff himself. Um, and so that was like one of the biggest, you know, things around ritual is that I am, I'm a workaholic, but hopefully not one that is, uh, 
you know, kind of, um, you know, detrimental. I mean, I've certainly gone through detrimental parts of my career from a workaholism, but I, I am always like trying to learn. I'm always really curious. I'm that guy when it comes to a conversation where you'll say something and I'll have like three fun facts about that same thing, you know, just because I want to consume so much knowledge. But yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's a big, and then I also learned, I mean, we're bootstrapped. So there's plenty of stuff in the office that I built, you know, not as well as I probably could have or that my dad would have, but there's plenty of right. stuff that I actually physically built, like call rooms and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I guess for me, you know, and I remember the DIY thing was really what struck me about this because I thought, you know, at first I was like, what am I going to talk to this guy about who's running a company that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with creativity? But then I thought about the DIY thing. I was like, this has everything to do with creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm always, what I wonder is in a world where we're moving so quickly towards, you know, automation and, and software, uh, you know, how do you balance that DIY approach with leveraging the tools that we have at our disposal? And, and I'll, I'll frame this for you with one other example. Uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people may not know is that I edited every episode of the podcast for probably the first 400 episodes. Um, wow, I never outsourced awesome. it. And every time I, I meet a friend who's a new podcaster who starts to build systems around a podcast, I say, I think the best thing you can do uh, to improve as an interviewer is to edit your own work uh, because mm-hmm. it forces you to listen to it multiple times. And yet, you know, we also want to run a business efficiently. So how do you balance that sort of DIY uh, value with using the tools, technology, uh, and everything else at your disposal? Yeah, I think it, it it comes down to two things, and it's something I'm sure you hear from a lot of you know quote unquote creatives. And and, and the first piece is constraints, right? Mm-hmm. So we we have uh, we we haven't raised any money, and and for those of you who might not know, like raising money is a very traditional thing to do when you're trying to build a high growth company. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're trying to start like a sandwich shop or something like that, it's very very different, um, or it can be. Sometimes it's very similar, but. For us in a software business, the fact that we didn't raise money out of the gate, it, it gave us a lot of constraints where, you know, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't afford certain things early days. So we had to do it ourselves. You know, I had to get a probably not a bachelor's degree, but I had to get an associate's degree in a lot of different things, um, learning about content, learning about sales, learning about engineering and products and different things like that. And I think the other thing is is really the the way that we think about it in the context of those constraints is really keeping core or keeping keeping doing what is your core. So for us, we do a lot of different, you know, pieces of content. You know, we we're shipping you know, five custom videos a week um, with different stories and they're parts of different series and all types of stuff. And that's a little unique for for a software company as well. But we do outsource a lot. You know, we outsource a lot of the post-production and we outsource even some of the research and things like that. But we keep the storytelling and we keep the actual scripting inside in-house, right? And that allows us to make sure that we're doing things that are our core and that we can do better or we think we can do better than anyone else. And if we can't do it better than anyone else, then, you know, we need to get better at it. And I think that that's, that's really, really important when you're doing anything, because if you're, you know, putting together some piece of art um, or some piece of, you know, craft that you're doing, a lot of times what will end up happening is, is people, they, they get too caught up in the, the other side of it, the business side of it. And what ends up happening is, is you lose that core and you get, just get really, really good at production, which, you know, all of a sudden loses, loses that element that's so important. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, the funny, funny thing is the service that, you know, connected me with you, I would never hire them for that very reason. Uh, because I realized the one thing that I do that's insanely valuable is choosing people. And I've never been willing to outsource that. And I know people who do. Yeah. I think we, we look at it. So some of that stuff, right. So like podcasting for us, it's not, it's not a core thing, right? Like it's Ooh. not our number one thing that we do, um, in terms of like, you know, reaching out and like marketing for, for other podcasts. Right. Yeah. Um, we have our own podcasts, which we wouldn't outsource like the production of those. But I think for us, it's th- that, that was part of an experiment. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's a ton of, you know, things that we can do and, and there's, you know, so much money to go around. And we found that, you know, being a guest on a podcast, you know, worked out pretty well for us. Um, and also yeah. like it got our story out there. And so, that was an experiment. Now it's 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 one of those things where we still do our own like really personalized outreach on on certain axes. But uh-huh. yeah, I think it's one of those things that you got to be willing to experiment on what you can outsource though as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I've had people who offer to to come and you know say, hey, we'll we'll find guests for you, and I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that because <clears throat> that's the most important choice I make. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those uh-huh. things you got to think about, like what is what is that core and. You know, for you, for this show, especially to maintain like the quality, I mean, you have to be picky and, you know, it's hard to be picky if someone else takes care of it. Exactly. Well, let's do this. I, I want to talk a little bit about how in the world do you get from, you know, growing up in this small, you know, farming town to Google, to a software company that doesn't seem like a linear, you know, logical progression of events. Yeah. I don't think there really is one. I think, I mean, I'm going to spin it so you can see yeah. the logical progression, but I don't know <laughs> right. if it was like a true logical progression. Uh I think, you know, for me, it was, I, th- th- this, this craving of learning. And I think that I, um, you know, I, I, it, it's hard to say because of, you know, like, it's just an uncomfortable thing to say, but like, I was also, I'm, I'm a smart kid. I was a smart kid. Right. And so it was one of those things where I was always like a, on a college path. Um, you know, it was pretty obvious. School was pretty easy, all that kind of fun stuff. And so I was just kind of a voracious learner. And when you come from, you know, basically a, a family where you're the first generation to go to college, uh, there's a lot of pressure. I wouldn't say a lot of pressure, but there's a, there's some pressure to go be a professional, be a doctor, be a lawyer, et cetera. Uh, so when I went to school and, and one of the big activities I did in, in high school and then college was um, speech and debate. And so the, the university I went to, the reason I went there is because I got a scholarship to basically um, go, you know, be on the speech and debate team at Bradley University in uh, Peoria, Illinois, which is central Illinois. Uh, and essentially, I, I went there and, you know, basically kind of fell out of love of, you know, wanting to become a doctor and, you know, a lawyer wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I looked at both of those kinds of jobs and was basically like, I can't, I can't go to, you know, a, a professional school and do all of the, you know, legwork to get those degrees and then just hate it. Right. Uh, and so I was a little bit lost. Um, and at this point I was interning in, in DC and doing a lot of like public, um, you know, public types of internships for different public institutions. And after kind of, um, applying to, um, a program, I got into the intelligence community for one of the agencies. Um, and I actually went and worked out there and, uh, in, in Fort Meade in Maryland. Uh, and it was one of the, like, probably the, the, the most serendipitous, but probably best kind of decision I ever, you know, like lucked into, um, was to go work there because I think it was one of those things where I learned a lot about logic. I learned a lot about, you know, how to make decisions. I learned a lot about prioritization and I just really got hooked on that and and started to kind of go, go at skills. And I think the one thing that happened though, is I didn't, I didn't 
like not talking about my job. Um, you know, mm-hmm. obviously when you work, you know, in the intelligence community, you can't really, you know, talk about your job. Uh, and it's also, you know, it was the government, it was super bureaucratic. And so I, um, you know, and young hubris, you know, being a kid out of school was like, oh, I want to go, you know, take over the world. I want to go take on the world, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I started applying at some places and I ended up, um, you know, Google, flew me out and had an interview and all that kind of fun stuff and, um, you know, got the job there. And and at that point it was Google still had this, like, you know, it still does like this very big cachet in terms of a name. Um, and, and I was, you know, frankly, I was chasing, I was chasing names. And, and in hindsight, I think that I lucked into, you know, having a lot of really, really good experiences, especially from an education standpoint. Uh, but I was just like, I don't know what, I don't exactly know what I want to do. This seems like a good position. Like it's one of the best companies to work for. And I was in basically, you know, ad sales essentially. And so there I, I, you know, started tinkering and I used a lot of my free time to basically, um, learn to code, um, at a very basic level, uh, learned a lot about data visualization and started working on basically, um, you know, problems. And I solved this cool problem um, at work and, you know, it made Google a bunch of money and I got this award. Um, but uh, they were going to shut my project down basically because it wasn't, you know, as big of a priority as these other projects. And so I was sitting there and I was like, oh man, like this isn't, this doesn't seem great. Um, you know, and young hubris again was like, well, if I'm going to do this myself or if I'm going to do this, you know, I'm going to bust my butt and, you know, be successful. I might as well do it on my own. And so I ended up jumping you know, into a startup um, that was out here because I, I thankfully, I don't think I had this foresight, but thankfully I, I again, lucked into um, knowing that I should go work somewhere else, a smaller company before trying to start my own. Um, and it was one of those companies where I was just like, oh man, this is a really good experience of what not to do. Um, I didn't really like love the culture. Uh, and then, you know, just had a, had a little bit of a moment where I worked on, you know, something similar to, to what we sell today. And fell in love with it and wanted to do my own thing and just kind of fell in love with problem solving. And that was about six years ago. And so just been kind of cranking since. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, I come from a family of academics. My dad's a college professor. So, you know, the, as you were telling me the story, the thing that came to my mind is I wonder, uh, how the relationship with your parents has changed as a byproduct of the fact that they come from this blue collar background and you have this very intellectual background. Like what has the dynamic been after your education? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I have a pretty terrible dynamic with my parents, to be frank. Um, so I, I appreciate them, you know, so 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 very much. But I think um, even when I was young, uh, and I, I don't think this is the, you know, this is necessarily the bedrock foundation of you know why the relationship is is pretty bad. But I think um, you know I was always a little bit of the black sheep of the family. Um, my older brother, you know, was kind of clear like you know, he, he wasn't like going to be a college kid. Right. Um, I think if he, if he applied himself, he absolutely could be, but, but I mean, your parents probably know better than anyone. Like not everyone's made for college, right. That's, that's just one path. Right. Um, I mean, welders make 150 grand a year and you know, there's, we're in, we're in, yeah, we're in need of hundreds of thousands of them right now. Right. And the reason there's so many kids like failing out of college and, you know, getting a bunch of debt is because they're just maybe not meant for college. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he was, he was kind of on that path. Um, you know, he didn't know if he wanted to go into the trades or not, but he eventually did. Uh, but, but it's, you know, I was a little bit of the black sheep and I knew it. And, you know, at times I was pretty arrogant about it. And other times, like, you know, my parents or I don't know if my parents were resentful about it, but there was just like a, 
there wasn't a there wasn't a good mix there. It was oil and water for for a while and a lot of axes. And so I think um yeah, it, it's been bumpy. It's it's you know not great, but I think um you know my parents they they understand what I do, but they don't understand what I do. It's like working in tech, like you know, right. it's it's all this like sub stuff of sub stuff that you know when you're in this industry, everyone's like, oh yeah, you guys do that. Oh, that's really cool, but it's just a bunch of jargon, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so it's not it's not great, but I think the relationship it's it, it definitely was probably affected by that that difference um, that difference in in kind of focus and that difference in in kind of uh, context that that both were there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
It's, it's so weird because like if, if in my family, you had said, you know, I'm going to, yeah, you know, go to college, I'm going to go work at the CIA and I'm going to go work at Google. You'd be anything but the black sheep. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you know, and that's, that's one of those interesting things I think about culture. Whereas in my family, I am the black sheep. My sister is a doctor, you know, good college kid, all, all that jazz. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I wonder. So you, one of the things that you also brought up was this idea that you were chasing a name. And I, I was having a, a conversation just yesterday with a college professor at, at Wharton, and we were talking about this very subject, uh, about the fact that what we tend to do is we tend to chase prestige because prestige is so valued by uh, the world around us. I mean, our social programming constantly reinforces that idea. Mm. Like, you know, the idea that, oh, you got a job at Google. Great. Nobody will ever question your sanity for taking a job at Google. They might question your sanity for leaving it. Uh, and I wonder, uh, one, why you think that is and how we overcome that. Like, how do you overcome an environment? Because it seems, you know, as, as I'm talking to you, the thing that I'm getting is in every part of your life, you've had an environment and you've not basically been limited by the narrative of that environment. Yeah, I think it's it's a... That's a really interesting question and interesting context. I don't know if I completely agree with it, but but let me maybe talk it out. I, I think that yeah. um, I think we chase prestige because it's it's a. I mean, there, there's probably some layer of the American dream in that, right? Like the manifest destiny, like you know, always be better, don't rest on your laurels, etc. Um, there's an element of you know just ego, right? Um, mm. I, I think for for me, it was kind of. Um, like my dad to this day, I'm 31 years old. He still wants me to be a doctor. Um, not like in, in like it's not as serious as it once was, but it's like it's it's almost like I don't know if it's prestige for him, but it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, you, you would have been a really good doctor. You would have been a really good doctor because if you think about you know families, a lot of it's like you know um, entry level, you know trades professional than, you know, maybe artists and things like that. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's just kind of how like families progress through generations. Typically, I think for me, like I, I even, you know, I, I, I chased prestige for a long time. Like I remember in college, um, I really wanted to be a Marshall or a Rhodes scholar. Like that was the goal. Um, and for those of you who don't know, those are really prestigious, you know, scholarships, like former presidents have been those things and stuff like that. And so, um, I didn't know why, but it was like a North star, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, I got to, you know, the finals of, of both and I was sitting there and, you know, I didn't get either of them, but it was one of those things where even in, at the end of it, it was like, I don't know if it was exactly the goal, um, or I don't know if it's exactly the goal or the outcome that I was going for, but it was like the journey that I really valued. Right. And, you know, that happened. I won a national championship when I was in college and same thing. I got the trophy and it felt so hollow, right. Because I was chasing this prestige and I almost, I, I like, if I kind of psychoanalyze myself, it's almost like this, like I trick myself into going after the prestige, um, you know, almost to, to get that journey. So for me, it was, it was more of like, there's always, there's always something better. There's always something better to go after. And as soon as I get close to the other thing, I kind of like go after the bigger thing. And I don't know, I, I, I think it, um, I got over some of this, I think when I was like in my mid twenties, when everyone kind of goes through that finally growing up phase, at least uh, amongst us young folks. Um, I think that for me, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I kind of, because I was thrust into doing so much actual legwork, there wasn't time to like go after prestige. And there's still like elements of ego, obviously, and elements of like chasing prestige and, you know, being fascinated by some of these things. But 
there's this mix of like that blue color background that keeps me a little bit more down to earth. And then I'm in this mm-hmm. world that's like very, um, I don't know if it's affluent. There's a lot of like what I like to call $30,000 millionaires who are just like, you know, spending all their money and, you know, they're all about tech crunch and everything. And they just, you know, they like they're in the know, but there's no like wealth there or prestige, if that makes sense. So I don't know. Yeah. Those are some rambly thoughts. I don't know if any of that was coherent. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely to, does. Something to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I think particularly if you're, you know, building a tech startup, you've gotten, you know, grown up in Silicon Valley. I think that uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I escaped that environment about 10 years ago. Like I spent all this time in San Francisco and I remember it was kind of like, these are the markers. You know, my, my previous roommate was like employee number five or six at Yelp. Mm. And I, I think that I've been so far removed from that world for such a long time that uh, you're no longer getting this idea drilled into your head of this is what success looks like. This is the definition, uh, which I think makes an interesting transition. Uh, so one of the other things I know is in the midst of all of this, you also were diagnosed with cancer, correct? Yeah. So I've actually, I've gone through the, the battle with cancer actually twice um, in the past decade. And so, um, yeah, it's been been an interesting ride. I'm more, more than happy to get into it. I, I don't know if I just cut you off to a question though. No, no, not at all. Well, I wonder uh, how something like that uh, starts to shift your value system and also makes you think about your your mortality and you know makes you like how does it change the way you measure your life uh that's a really great deep question i think uh i don't know if i have an equally deep answer but i'll i'll try <laughs> i think um you know what's funny is you're there when you're growing up and it doesn't matter you know if if you're in the us and you're growing up you're going through a lot of different, like we, we all have some sort of struggle, right? And, and not all struggles created equal, but you know, it might feel equal, right? Like some of us struggle with like, you know, we're poor, we're destitute, you know, we come from single parent families, we are abused, all this kind of stuff. Others of us struggle with, Hey, we missed out on an opportunity to do this thing. Right. And, and we could objectively look at those things and say, Hey, like one of those does objectively seem worse than the other, but they might not feel that different, right? And I think that my where I'm getting to with this is that once we reach a certain age, um, we either just never really come to terms with some of those struggles and we let them kind of affect your entire life, um, or we realize like struggle is a part of the process and struggle is part of you know who we are and that progression. And so for me, um, the first time I got cancer, I was at Google and it was, you know, probably the best place to get sick ever. Uh, <laughs> just cause, uh, you know, my manager was like, oh, you don't have to come in. I was like, no, no, no. I want to get paid. She's like, yeah, we'll pay you. Like you can just leave, you know, just go do your thing. Um, like I never saw a bill or anything like that, which was really, really good. But the emotional aspect of it was kind of sitting there and dealing with, you know, oh shit. Like, you know, this is, this is something where, you know, I'm not probably not going to die like because I got like a good form early enough of cancer, but you have this weird emotional like realization that you are going to die one day and you know, you're sick and you can't, you have limits now and you have all these different things. And so from a perspective, for me, it was one of those things where you mature really, really quickly when you have those, those struggles. Um, and when you realize that those struggles are part of the progression and in terms of my perspective, this is probably what really drove me to jump out and do my own thing, um, especially coming from a very you know risk averse family that's that's typically blue collar. 
because all of a sudden it was like, well, I'm going to die one day. Like, I, I don't want to get to the end and regret something. Um, I'm probably going to regret something, but I don't want to regret something that's really easy for me to solve, especially when I'm in my mid twenties. And, you know, especially when, when I can screw this up a couple of times. Um, and I think that y- you get from a point of, you know, that, that youthful immortality feeling, you know, starts to wane, um, because you start to realize that there's, you know, there is going to be an end and you want to, you want to produce something. And I think that the second time I had cancer, it was a couple years into building ProfitWell, it was then called Price Intelligently. Um, thankfully it was again, caught early enough and, you know, I didn't have to go through as much treatment as I did the first time, but it was one of those things where, you know, you, you go through this, this mind screw of, you know, oh man, I, I just dealt with this. I thought I got over it, right? And there, because I was in the midst of building a company, it was it, it. It kind of maybe to pull back from the prestige conversation. It kind of reduced the need for for the things that are ephemeral and the things that maybe don't matter. You know, what really mattered started to matter a lot to me was you know building something that lasted, working on the craft of building something our customers love, making sure the people here. Who work here have a have you know a fulfilling time, not necessarily a happy time, because that's you know that can be ephemeral as well, but like a really fulfilling, and they learn something. Um, and it's just you kind of snap into, hey, here's what matters, and you also stop you know f- stop fearing a lot of things, um, you know, because I I don't fear death anymore. Like I could die tomorrow, and I feel like I'm in a good place. Um, you know, I'll probably fear it if it's coming, and it's coming slowly, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really fear the end anymore, which I think is is something that helped helped me a lot. Yeah, how did it change uh, the relationships in your life with family and friends? Uh, this was super interesting, actually. Um, for me, I th- there's a couple of things that happened. So one, like there there's there's a level and this this was not you know this was more my fault i feel than others but there's there's that level of acquaintance loose friendships that got really um was really problematic for me during this time because you know when someone's like oh i have cancer your first instinct is to go oh my gosh i'm so sorry right and your first instinct is to say how can i help what can i do and while that's really really good intention what ends up happening to the person who's going through that is they're sitting there and they're like, okay, now I need to make it about you because I have to say, oh no, it's okay. Everything's going to be fine when they're the one going through this. Right. And so for me, um, I, you know, I, I, I lost or I, I purged some friendships because, you know, it was one of those things where it just became too much to handle. Um, but I also think that I found out like who my, who my true friends were because, you know, there was some, there was some stuff that I just needed. Right. Um, I, I just need some help occasionally. And I, I wasn't a big person who asked for help a lot. Uh, but that was when I was like, hey, I need some help. And, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, I can't, you know, I can't help. And it, it's kind of a weird thing, right? Because it kind of contradicts what I was just saying with like, you know, you, you want to go all in and help, but you have to have this weird balance when someone's going through that. Um, I know that my relationship, I was with, um, you know, someone at the time, I think it it definitely affected um, how... I thought about that person um, because I think when, you know, when you're in your early twenties, you know, you, you know, and even late teens, you're like, Oh, we're going to fall in love. We're going to be together forever and all that kind of fun stuff. And then as you get older, you're like, wait, I can choose my friends. You know, I can choose what I want. And now I'm starting to figure out actually what I want. And so I think that accelerated, um, you know, the end of that relationship. 
which which was a good thing. Net net, I obviously didn't feel great at the time. Um, but I also think you know it's kind of weird, and this sounds a little selfish, but my relationship with myself got better. Um, I growing up, and there's a lot of reasons for this. I, I'm an incredibly insecure person, and I still am on a lot of levels. Um, I am, you know, I, I was always a fat kid. Then I lost a bunch of weight. Then I gained a bunch of weight back building the company. Um, you know, I, I didn't have the greatest, you know, upbringing with some of the stuff that we talked about before. Um, so that created like, you know, a, a really low level of self-confidence. And I think that when this happened, it was very much like, I'm going to hurt. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to ask help for the right people. I'm going to do a lot of different things. And, and, you know, I kind of, you know, I kind of built my own self-confidence during that period, which I think was super helpful. So yeah, I, I think it was, I think it was great because it, it just hit me all at the right time where I could very much figure out, you know, what's important to me. I could very much figure out, you know, what, what I wanted out of life, um, which is kind of a natural thing that hopefully typically happens to people in their mid to late twenties. Yeah. Yeah, so I've asked this question in, in one form or another, and, and the reason that it's fresh on my mind is because somebody asked it uh, of me a few weeks ago in an interview. Uh, why do you think it is that we need a crisis to bring about change? And can you bring about the change that you want in your life without having the crisis? It seems that the crisis is almost always the catalyst. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing question. I, I don't know. I think that we... I think it's just as humans... Like, like it depends on how you look at humanity, right? Um, you know, are humans... Like it, it could even go back to, you know, are humans, you know, are they born good? Or are they born bad? Right. Like, cause there's an element of this where it's just, you know, in humanity we're you know, we, especially like, let's just be really clear, like Western, you know, middle class humanity or up, you know, we're, we're, we're typically born, you know, kind of lazy, um, you know, not, not in the sense of like, we don't do things, we don't work hard, but just in the sense of like, you know, we get into these patterns, right? We get into these patterns and, and you need a jolt out of those patterns. And I think a lot of times there's some sort of a crisis that that really goes after it. And, and for me personally, I think like changing my own perspective and, and during this time, I was, I was very negatively motivated um, up until this point. Um, you know, tell me I can't and then I will. Uh, you know, tell me I suck and then I'll get better. Like I was very negatively motivated. And I think this was like a jolt of like, Hey, I can take better care of myself and and I can, you know, change to being more positively motivated. But I think it just really comes down to we need we need that jolt. Um and a lot of times we just don't see that when we're we're in the thick of things. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, go back to something that you said earlier about working intelligence. Uh, you said that it, it taught you how to make decisions and, and organize and execute. And I wonder if you could share you know, what some of those lessons were and how you've applied them in, in building the company that you're building today. Yeah, I think, and, and I, you know, obviously I can't talk about the specific sure. subject matter. I'd have to kill you. No, I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> no, it's, it's more, um, it, it's more around, so I think the one thing we don't really teach, like there's a couple of things we don't teach well anymore uh, unless you seek it out. Uh, and that's, that's writing, communicating properly. Um, your parents mm-hmm. as, you know, professors, I'm, I, I don't know if they teach like freshmen or not, but you know, a lot of times, no matter if they're freshmen or not, there's, there's a lot of kids who just never taught how to write and communicate properly. Um, and I think the other thing that we don't really teach is around critical thinking. And when I mean critical thinking, it's, you know, thinking of a system, thinking of, hey, this is the input, what are the possible outputs, or we're getting this output, what are the possible inputs, 
you know, stuff like that. And when I went and worked at NSA, it was one of those things where the training program, you're, you're literally working with constraints. You might not be able to access, you know, certain information um, for a lot of reasons. You might have a very small amount of information. And so you have to really think critically in order to figure out, okay, I have this target. I'm trying to get to this bad guy or this bad gal, or I'm trying to figure this out. And I only have these constraints. So I have to think about the problem and I have to think about the causes to the problem. And then I have to think about what are potential solutions and then test those solutions. Right. And so that I, like, I couldn't have asked for a better crash course in training in that. Uh, my econ degree, I think helped with that. Um, because that's kind of how an economist typically thinks about things. But, and then the debate and speech stuff helped with that because when you're writing and have to think through, you have to think through like an argument. But that, that was, I mean, that's some of the best, best educational background that I ever got. And, and I find when I'm hiring now, it's really hard to find people with those skills because, you know, we just don't teach it and we don't have as much practice in that, um, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. And when I started, you know, building Price Intelligently called then, now it's called ProfitWell, basically what ended up happening is, is, all of the things you face, it's a critical thinking problem mixed with a resource constraint mixed with a prioritization exercise. So when it was just me in a room working, you know, 18 hours a day for the first nine months, um, it was me sitting there trying to figure out, okay, um, we, it's just me. Uh, we have no money because we didn't raise any money. <laughs> and so what, what do I do? What's the thing that's going to get the most leverage or output for the current goal that we have inside the business. And those constraints mixed with critical thinking, it, it come, sometimes makes you, you know, this sounds, you know, not like a bad thing, but it sometimes makes you too thoughtful because you're thinking the problem too much and not acting. But it's one of those things that like, I couldn't have asked for, for better training. And especially as being a CEO, because when you're a CEO, especially at a company that's, you know, growing, you're, you're always putting out fires or like identifying the fire, deciding if it's a fire that you're going to let burn or that one that you have to put out. And then either assigning someone or like taking it on yourself. And so, yeah, it was, it was crazy, crazy helpful as, you know, as we were building the company. Yeah. Well, that was, that was awesome. Like I, I, in my mind, I was like, literally, okay, I could just learned about a thousand things in two minutes there. That's awesome. Great. That's cool. So let's talk about the fact that you have taken a very, uh, in some ways, contrarian approach. I mean, and there are probably a handful of people like the folks at Basecamp who've also shared your worldview about this in, in terms of not raising money, uh, you know, not sort of doing what the, the so-called unicorns do. And, you know, I, I wonder um, how that changes the way that you uh, view your company personally. Like I remember hearing Mark Cuban say this, I think in an episode of Shark Tank or an interview with Chase Jarvis. And I thought this was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. He said, you should avoid taking other people's money at all costs. And yet he's an investor. Yeah. And I, I that, that always stayed with me. And so I, I wonder about this, this, you know, sort of contrarian view. One, why is it not more common? I, you know, what's funny. I think that the end of the should you raise funding, should you not raise funding debate is always, well, funding's not a bad thing, it's a tool, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's what it is, right? And, and you have Basecamp and, and you know, Jason and DHH on one side, and, and they're, you know, th they would admit to that as well, but some of the things they write are, you know, F funding, you know, funding, they're just taking yeah. your money, they're going to screw you over, et cetera. And the other end of the debate, you, you have people who are, you know, it's kind of like going to a barber and asking if you need a haircut. Well, of course, an investor is going to be like, hey, you need investment, right? And and I think that it's one of those things where it's it's a tool. 
And so there are some businesses, and there's a lot of businesses that raise money that you and I could look at even without looking at some of the details and just be like, yeah, that, that business probably doesn't need money, right? If you and I were going to start a software company tomorrow, you know, we, we don't need to raise a lot of money. We don't raise any money for, for most software companies out there because there's just so much tools. It's incredibly cheap to spin up a website, all these different things. Like you don't need to raise a million dollars to do that. Now, if you, we were working on a nuclear fusion reactor, we probably would need some money, right? Because, you know, there's there's a lot of time that's going to go to before going to market. And so I think the debate, I, I I don't know, I find the debate like, you know, people goad me into being the, you know, FVC guy. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know, like, yeah, we don't need money. And, and maybe we won't ever, we'll probably need to raise money at some point for some of our bigger ambitions. But I, I just think it's one of those things. And this is, I mean, this is kind of the previous stuff coming out, right? Like right. everything, everything is not a binary decision. Like when you think through a problem and, and raising VC or not raising VC is, is a problem, like it's never going to be a binary. It's going to be like, all right, what are you going to do with the money? Well, this is what we would do. Is it okay? Is that worth the trade-off of losing 20% um, and gaining a partner or is it not? Right. It's just a, it's just an optimization problem. And I think too many people treat it as this very emotional problem. Uh, and in reality, it's just a, you know, it's just something to kind of think through. I do think there's more, it's easier to be contrarian on that today than it was 10 years ago. Because like I said, you and I can spin up a website and do a bunch of stuff without needing yep. money. Now we couldn't do like 10, 10, 15 years ago. A lot of people don't realize like a lot, just the infrastructure, you know, even uh -huh. 15, 20 years ago, especially like you still had a closet that had servers in it, right? <laughs> like it was just kind of insane to build a company. You need a lot of capital just to like get started. And so I don't know. It's easy. It's it's really easy to be like, you know, forget the VCs when, you know, life, right. life is easier now, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll come out on one side of the debate one day. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I, I had uh, Lisa Gansky uh, on the podcast, which was long before we even uh, called Unmistakable Creative. And she was the, the co-founder or founder of Ophoto. And I remember her telling me, because um, I think I'm about 10 years older than you. So I went to Berkeley when, you know, what you're talking about was the reality mm, where you yeah. needed thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours to build a website. And she told me they raised something like $60 million just to build that company. And now you could do that uh, in a weekend. Yeah, it's crazy. From your garage. Well, you know, it's kind of yeah. wild too. You had Natalie on recently from Wildbit. Um, and I know Natalie yeah. and, and Chris uh, um, pretty well from Wildbit. And it's also the path choice, right? So yeah. If you want to build a $100 million plus company and you want to do it within a short amount of time, a short amount of time being less than 10 years, the likelihood you're going to need to raise VC funding to do that is, is probably pretty high. Now, if you want to build a company that's doing 20 million um, plus or minus whatever within five to 10 years, and you're not really trying to go after being a big company, you don't want to go public, you just want to collect some profit, do profit sharing with the rest of your team, like then there's by no means do you need any funding to do, you know, a, a standard, you know, software company, right? Um, that's why I admire, you know, folks like Natalie, because it, that's, that's kind of the model that they do and the Wistia folks. And there's a whole other, you know, groups of people out there, but it's just, again, it's, it's a tool. And so if, if you want to reduce the time and you're trying to go big, you know, then, then you need the tool. Yeah. I think the other thing that, uh, is is really important here is understanding what your values are you know I, I had a mentor for a while who you know was really you know adamant when we first started uh, you know unmistakable creative and we made the shift from a previous brand it was like we're going to build a media company he's like do you want to build a personal brand or a media company and you know we tried basically to become sort of another vox media or, or huffington post and it was just a, a great a shit show because i realized that when i got to the end of the year it was like 
wait a minute, the whole reason I started this was so that I would never have to do that again. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I think that like values, if, when I started the company, if you would have told me values and culture are important, like, or, or, yeah. or that they're one of the most important things, I would have been like, oh, screw you. Like, that's not true. It's going to be, it's going to be the product. It's going to be the marketing. It's going to be something else that's so important. And at the end of the day, like choosing who you want to be, you know, know thyself and then, you know, imbuing that throughout the entire company and attracting other people that are similar to you. That's all values. Uh-huh. That's all culture. That's, that's all it is. And, and I sound like someone I would make fun of six years ago, but it's, it's like totally true if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wonder um, at this point in your life, you know, having worked at the NSA, Google, having built a startup that's doing well, uh, what are you still uncertain about and what are you still afraid of? Oof, everything. Uh, (laughs) uh, That's a really good question. I think that I am, like there's some very like pragmatic answers to that question. Like there's, there's things where, you know, we're building... Right now we have like four different products. It's we we can weave them together if you gave us a paragraph to explain it, but we don't have this nice little missive of like two words, you know, like conversational marketing. Like we don't have something like that for our business right now. So that's something I'm uncertain of. But I think that um I think personally I am I'm a little uncertain about whether I'm making the right decisions. And what I mean by that is I I'm sitting here and, you know, I'm in my early thirties now and, uh, I'm like, okay, well, I really like to work. I love to work. I love to learn new, I love to learn new things. And I'm getting a little bit of that. Is this the right thing to do? Like, do I want to, you know, build a billion dollar company? Um, do I want to, which the answer right now is yes, but now I'm thinking and I'm uncertain of, well, the likelihood that that happens is, is low, just pragmatically and objectively it's low. And I found the right partner, I feel, but is that going to affect that pursuit? Is that going to affect my relationships with my kids, my relationships with that partner? Um, you know, my happiness level, my health, all these different things. Like, are all those things, is it, oh, and then is it okay if they, those things do affect those things? Is it okay that it affects those things? Because this is my life's work, right? And so there's a little bit of a, a mild existential crisis going on, if you will, um, you know, just in terms of, hey, is this, is this what I want? I think, you know, in life, I'm, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm uncertain about just like professionally in terms of, you know, how do we figure this out? Is this the most important way to do this? Is this the best way to do this? But I think those personal things, what I've started to find is if I can figure those things out, then all of the professional stuff can can easily fall into place, or at least I can weather those professional things a lot easier. Uh, just because it's one of those things where you know it's it's uh, you know a little bit easier to manage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been amazing, uh, really, really eye opening and thought provoking and uh, insightful. You've you've given a lot of tactical stuff and a lot of philosophical stuff. So I want to finish with my last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's conviction. That's, that's the number one thing to me. Um, like there's, there's this, this phrase that I've been told, you know, ever since I was on a team, um, the debate team back in the day, um, you know, success is a byproduct of excellence. And the only way that you get to excellence is with some sort of conviction because you're going to get knocked down a bunch. 
you know, stuff's going to, you know, hit you. You're going to like screw up. You're going to get unlucky. There's going to be a lot of different things. And when you have conviction of figuring out your craft, conviction of succeeding, whatever it is, that conviction leads to that excellence and thereby will lead to that success. Um, so to me, that's, that's what makes people unmistakable is just that conviction. Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you and everything that you're up to? Yeah, um, I'm just Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn, um, Patticus on Twitter, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. Um, and then you can always email me at pc at profitwell.com. Um, and then Profitwell is where, you know, obviously the business and stuff like that. But um, my life's kind of the business. And so <laughs> it's it's kind of, it's a good proxy for what's going on with me if you're curious. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.